So this is part five in our uh, summer series called Faithful, and there, there's, this is a study through the book of Judges. We're taking it kind of section by section and going through it. If you were here last week or if you listened to our message online uh, through our website, you know that last week uh, Pastor Ben talked about the judge or the leader of Israel called Gideon, and, and we'll actually be carrying on his story in just a little bit. First of all, there's some certain things as I go through the book of Judges more and more, and as I you know, dig down deeper, there's some things that kind of stick out more. One of the things that we're going to touch on today is kind of our overall theme for the book of Judges, as you see on the screen. It's faithful, faithful. Um, the, the book of Judges is all about God's faithfulness. And even when our big unfaithfulness seems big, God's faithfulness is even bigger, no matter what he is faithful. And, and the question is, why can God be so faithful even when people are unfaithful to him? If, if you and I try to be faithful to someone who's been unfaithful to us, maybe it's, it's because they're promising. Maybe, maybe we'll give them a second chance. Oh, they still got something left in them. They're promising. That's not why God is faithful. He is faithful not because people are promising. He is faithful because he has promised. And that's the foundation for his faithfulness, and, and we'll dig a little bit into that today. So we're, we're diving into the story of Gideon, and I wish I had time for a, a lengthy introduction just to get you completely hooked, but I, there's a lot of content today, so I really want to dig into it right away. Uh, so I'm just going to say this. Every judge is a little bit unique, and at the same time, every judge in the book of Judges is similar. And, and you've seen the similarities already. The similarity is that all of them have some sort of a weakness, a blatant weakness. Remember Ehud? He's kind of our, my go-to guy. Left-handed, you know, that was viewed as a weakness for him. Um, and, and so each judge has a weakness. What's unique about Gideon, here's the really unique thing about him that you don't really see in any other judge. Gideon asked God a question. He had a request for God that you and I wish we could ask God every day. He had the gall to ask God for something that we wish we could get from God every day. And it was simply this. A variety of times, Gideon said to God, God, give me a sign so I know what to do. How many times have you asked God for a sign so you know what to do? God, give me a sign so I know if this is the right time to move or if I should stay here. God, give me a sign so I know which career path to go down. God, give me a sign so I know if I should date him. Dad says, I'm your sign. No, you're not going to date him. <laughs> There's a variety of signs we might wish for every single day. And maybe it's this thing where it's very obvious, very blatant. Like you pray to your Father in heaven and give me a sign and you've pur purposely asked for one. Or maybe it's just something you wished. I wish I had a clear sign. Now, here's the thing. I know that as, as we come in here today, there's going to be a variety of different people, and some of you are going to be on, on this side of things. You're going to say, oh, no, 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 no. You do not ask God for signs. That is sinful. You should only hold on to God's word. That's, that's the only thing you should do. You should not ask God for signs. That's bad, bad, bad. And, and there, are those, there are those of us in here. On the other side, some of you are like, I have no problem asking God for signs. I ask him for signs every day. I asked him for a sign. What to do just last week? What should I have for supper? Give me a sign. And so you're very comfortable asking God for signs. So I, I recognize there's two different camps here. And maybe some of you fall somewhere in the middle. And I'm not saying that one is right and one is wrong. Here's what I am saying. Gideon was really unique because he had the boldness to ask God face-to-face -face more than once, hey, give me a sign here. Give me a sign 
so I know what to do. And, and here's what we're going to learn today. As we talk about the last part of his story uh, about how Gideon led Israel during a really tough time, we're going to be able to apply some things to us. We're going to ask the question, does God still give us signs today? Is it okay to ask him for a sign? And what would it look like? And so we're, we're hopefully going to dig into the bottom of that and uh, on. Unpack that a little bit as, as we get in here. So if, if you were here last week or if, if you know your Bible really well, we started with the story of Gideon in the very beginning. And there was a location, a place where his story starts. Do you know where? Remember where? Where was he? Where was he? Open for discussion. Where did his story start? Come on, Shelly. <laughs> I can see it. I want to tell. His story starts in a wine press. And, and maybe if you were here, you remember why he was here. The Midianites, they, they're this nation that's been oppressing Israel. And they're just like these parasites. that they, they come in, they take away everything from the Israelites, and then they run off. So what Gideon is doing, Gideon is inside of this wine press threshing wheat. And, and normally what you do outside where there's lots of breeze, he does inside. He's hiding because he doesn't want the Midianites to come and steal his food. And so then what does God say? God actually appears in a physical form in front of him. And God sees this guy hiding in a wine press threshing wheat. And God says, Hail, mighty warrior. And Gideon's looking around, talking to me? <laughs> And, and God says, Gideon, this is the way it's going to work. You are a mighty warrior. You're going to lead my people Israel away from the Midianites. You're going to redeem them. You're going to deliver them. And so Gideon gets into this little discussion with God. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to turn to a few places here in, in Judges chapter 6. The first place is this. Judges 6 verse 14. So this is the Lord, again, right in front of this wine press. Gideon inside. God, uh, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. And, and, and again, if you're Midian, you're thinking, I'm hiding in a wine press. What is this strength you speak of, kind sir? And then finally Gideon replies, Give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Give me a sign so I know it's really you. God, is it really, really you? And what Gideon does next is really weird. But first of all, I want to ask you the question, have you ever asked God that question? Have you ever asked, asked him, is it really you? And while you think about that question, I'm going to tell you what Gideon did. So after Gideon asked this question, he goes off. He's like, okay, here's what's going to happen uh, if you are the Lord, I want you to wait here by this wine press. I'm going to go off. I'm just going to get a quick offering for you. I'm going to bring it back, and I want you to wait here for me. So, so the Lord says, okay, I'll wait here for you. And Gideon goes off, and this is his quick offering. He, he selects a, a young lamb from his flock. He slaughters it. He cleans it. He roasts it. I don't know how long it takes to slaughter and roast a whole lamb, but that's the amount of time it took him. Then it says that after roasting this lamb, he also baked some bread. And the amount of flour he used to bake this bread was 90 cups of flour. Imagine making a loaf of bread with 90 cups of flour. And then on top of that, he also makes some tasty broth. 
and he takes some time to make some tasty broth. So I want you to just think about how long that would take to do all those things. Gideon runs off. Here's my take. My take is that Gideon prepares this big, long meal because he's hoping that when he comes back, God will be gone. Oh, God, please don't be here. Please don't be here. Please don't be here. Please don't be here. And he's like several hours. He finally comes back. Oh, he's still here. What is he doing? God is still there. And so what, the, what God says is, all right, Gideon, I, I'm going to give you a sign. Put your food on this rock right here. So he puts this lamb, puts however many loaves of bread he made, and he pours the broth over all of it. It's like he's wasting all this food. And what God does, and Gideon did not see this coming. God took, he had a staff in his hand. God took this staff, and he touched the food with it. And it erupted in flames, this huge fire. And then God disappears. And Midian is so afraid, he's so scared, that he saw the face of God and that he didn't believe it was actually him. God gave him a sign to know, yes, Midian, you are a mighty warrior. I want you to go in the strength that you have. Do what you can do. I will deliver Midian through you. Now, here's, here's what God did for Midian. Here's what he does for you, too. Sometimes you might ask that question, too. God, is it really you who's talking to me? Is it really, really you? And this is a fundamental question that Jesus had to demonstrate for the people in his day. Everyone went up to him wondering, who are you? Who are you? Even though for centuries God had been saying, I, I will be Emmanuel. I will be God with you. And as you look through the New Testament, a lot of times it talks about Jesus' various miracles. And as you read the, the New Testament, there's a common word used to describe his miracles. It says, Jesus performed signs. He performed signs and miraculous wonders. Signs, signs, signs. What were these the signs of? These were signs, these were proofs that it was really God. That he had really come just as he said. And so here's one th uh, take home. This is one thing that we learn from this, from this story and from the Bible in general is that when God gives a sign, it proves that he is really there. God's signs prove that he is really there. And so if you're looking for a sign, if, if you're looking for something, this is one of the primary reasons in the Bible or in general why God gives signs, to prove that it's really, really So Gideon, he, he goes out of this experience knowing, okay, this was God that I just talked to. And so what he does is, um, the, the story goes on, he sends out word to various tribes in the area, tribes of Israel, and he says, come on, send me some, so, send me some soldiers, send me some men, bring your fighting equipment. And so he gathers this small force, I call it small, maybe it was big, he gathers this, this medium-sized force, 32,000 men show up. This coming from a guy who just got out of a wine press threshing wheat. He gathers 32,000 men. And here's how I often think about this. I've never actually been skydiving, but here's how I picture it. You know, you kind of see all these guys in the back of the airplane. Maybe even, it's, it's even a special ops team or whatever. And they got all their gear on. They got their parachutes on. You know, there's the open door or whatever out in the back of the airplane. Um, but the only thing holding them back is this red light. There's this red light that's on. Uh, what they're waiting for is they're waiting for the light to turn green. And as soon as that light turns green, bam, they're all out the, out the airplane and, and they're going down. So they're all ready to go. They're just waiting for the green light. That's how I picture Gideon during this time. He's got all these soldiers. He's got 32,000 men. They've they got all their armor, their equipment. They're ready to go. Gideon is just waiting for the green light. And so he asks God for a sign. And here's how he does it. 
Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, then he sort of breaks, breaks off here. He's like, well, here, I'll, I'll make you a deal. Look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And that's what happened. A pretty amazing miracle. He puts a piece of wool down on the ground. He says, God, if, if you put dew only on the fleece and the ground is completely dry around it, then I'll know that's a sign for me to have the green light. And it says the next morning he picked up this fleece, he wrung it out. <clears throat> All this water gushes out of the fleece. And you might think to yourself, wow, that's pretty cool. Gideon should have gotten the green light at that point. But as you read through the story, that wasn't good enough for Gideon. He's like, God, I'm, I'm sorry. Just let's make sure the green light is really on. Next time, uh, tomorrow, how about we do this? I'll put the fleece down. You make the fleece dry and the ground wet. So sure enough, next morning, bam, another green light. Fleece is dry, ground is wet. God gave him a green light. And here's, here's the thing. You and I might be wishing, I wish I had a piece of fleece like that, right? I'd be putting that thing out every single morning. All right, what am I going to ask today? What am I going to ask today? What's, what should I get as a sign? And maybe even this is why some people are critical of the Bible, because we look at stories like this, and there's, like, there's no scientific proof for this. There's no way we can possibly replicate this. If that really happened, then why doesn't God do it for me too? And that's a fair question to ask, and it's a fair question that deserves to be answered. Why doesn't my fleece work like Gideon's? And the key part here is, is what's in yellow. If you will deliver us as you have promised. You see, so often when I put my fleece down on the ground and I say, God, I'm waiting for a sign, tell me what to do. What I'm really thinking is, God, I am so promising. I have so much behind me. I have so much capability. I just want you to launch me in a specific direction and you'll never be sorry. God, I am so promising so promising if you would just point the way. The thing is, God is not faithful because we're promising. God is faithful because he has promised. That's something Gideon understood. He was holding God to his promise. God, he's basically saying, God, I know you promised something very specific. Now assure me that you will hold to that promise. He was holding God to a promise. He was not holding on to himself as someone who was promising. Uh, that's something that we really need to learn. Uh, fill in number two here. God's signs prove that he doesn't break a promise. When God gives a sign, it, you always have to start with that presupposition. It's not that I'm just looking for guidance for me, me, me. Um, um, where should I go? What should I do? What career should I have? You know, it's, it's not this self-focused thing that we should be expecting a sign from God for. The signs he gives, those signs demonstrate that he will not break a promise. And there are some signs that he still gives today. God gave that sign to Noah after the flood. Here's my rainbow. Here's my sign that I will not break my promise never to do that again. God's signs demonstrate that he will not break his promises. 
Now, we, we're getting into this last part here, and here's where you might be thinking, oh my goodness, if I were Gideon, I would be so giddy with joy. I would just be so happy because God had, first of all, you know, on this rock, he burned up the, the, the uh, offering. I was like, wow, God is really here. Then after that, God put this, I put this fleece on the ground, and God gave me the green light. It's like, wow, I got these 32,000 men. Everyone's following me. Everything's looking good. And maybe you've had times in life like that, too where you're feeling 100%, like everything's going for you, uh, everything's going great in the family, everything's going great at work, and it's like everything is just lining up perfectly. And then this happens. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Now, we're not sure how big the Midianite forces were, but it, it seems that the amount of men that Gideon had assembled was, was just right. Just right to do the job. God said, you have too many men, however, for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Then he goes on, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. And it's going to go on in just a second. But here's, here's where you got to really feel it for Gideon. He's ready. He's got the green light. And, but then, before they jump out of the plane, God says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Too many men. We need to do some reductions here. And maybe you felt that way too. We're going to get a little bit more specific in a second. But maybe you felt like, oh man, things are going so well. But then it's like, it seems like God throws something down in front of you. Hold on. Red light. We need to make some changes. And, and get what he's saying here. God is not saying to Gideon, you've got too many men to win. God doesn't say that. He, in essence, God is saying, look, you can take these 32,000 men. You could defeat this army. That's not the, that's not the issue. You have too many men for me to deliver the army into your hands. And so in order that this army and so that the Israelites will not boast against me, here's what we're going to do. Gideon, I've got an idea. What if instead of your army winning, what if I fought for you? So here's, here's what happens. The, the, the first reduction in troops is very strategic. And we might say this is a good move from God. God tells Gideon, here's what you're going to do. Go in front of these 32,000 men, make an announcement. Say to them, anyone who is afraid of battle may go home. This is not a trap. This is not a trick. You, may, you are free to go home if you are in any way afraid to fight. And out of 32,000 men, guess how many leave? You're at yeah, 22,000. The, the army is reduced by two-thirds, over two-thirds. And so what started as 32,000 is now down to 10,000. So Gideon's like, all right, all right, 10,000 troops, let's go. All right, guys, let, God says, no, wait, 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 wait. Still too many. Still too many. And this second reduction that, that Gideon has to go through, it, it doesn't even make military sense. It, it has no basis for any... Uh, morale whatsoever. I mean, the first one, yeah, get rid of, get rid of the, the scared soldiers. That's a good tactic. But the second one is just weird. God says, all right, Gideon, I want you to take these 10,000 soldiers down to the river, down to the water, and have them get something to drink. And I'm going to tell you, Gideon, which ones stay and which ones go. So Gideon's like, all right, let's go down to the water, guys. And so 10,000 troops down by the water. And God says something crazy. God says, all right, I want you to pick only some of these troops to stay. Here's, here's how you're going to divide them. Some of the troops are what we call normal people. 
they are getting down on their knees and they're scooping some water up and they're drinking it out of their hands because as you know when you drink from a river or, or from a whatever it's not a drinking fountain there can be things in the water fish swim in there thing people animals do things that's all I'm gonna say when you scoop up the water you can see this is good to drink and so and so they would drink the water so normal people did that and then there is a subcategory I call them abnormal people. What these guys would do is they would kind of lay down on their stomachs, it seems, and they would just stick their faces in the water and just drink it up like dogs. And there, this, it was almost this mad-looking thing where, what's wrong with that guy? And at the, at the very least, it was kind of unsanitary, you know, sticking your old face in there and lapping it up like a dog. God says, all right, Gideon, I want you to take the crazies. Take those, the guys who just put their faces in the water and drank it right up. I want you to take those guys. And when Gideon counted how many men that was, 300. 300 men were left for him to fight with. And so if you're doing math, I'm not terribly good at it, but roughly that's less than 1% of his original army. And Gideon's got to be thinking, what in the world are we doing here? So the, the remaining 9,700 soldiers, they leave their, um, some of their equipment, they, they go off home, they, they, go, they go back, and now Gideon has these 300 men, all because of what God had said. Look, it's not that you can't win this battle. It's that I want to be the one who delivers you. Because here, here's uh, our third uh, key truth here that we also need to remember. Sometimes the means of deliverance is more important than the result of deliverance. Yeah, Israel could have been delivered by those 32,000 men fighting hard, and they could have done it. But that kind of deliverance would leave them far away from God. And that was not a deliverance God wanted them to have. It would be better for them to remain slaves to Midian than to have this victory through Gideon. So the means of deliverance is much more important. God says, I want to be the one who delivers you. I want you to trust in me for this. And therefore, I'm going to hold off on your deliverance until you are ready to work with 1%. And that is such, such a hard lesson for me to learn sometimes, that when I'm feeling 100%, I should be ready for a reduction in troops. That when I'm being scaled back 90, 80, 70, whatever the percentage may be, when I'm feeling like I'm going backwards, maybe God's trying to teach me something. That it's not about just delivering me from something, setting me free from something, whatever it may be. The more important thing is how it happens. Will it be with him? Will it be with him? And so this is a key thing that, that we need to apply to ourselves today. The means of deliverance, the way God does it, is much more important than just the result of it. Now, now, there's one area that that doesn't apply to, and, and maybe you know what that is. For each and every one of us, each and every person, each and every human being, God does a drastic reduction because when, when we go up to him, you know, we're saying, I've got this, I'm good, I'm a good person, and before God can deliver us from sin, from death, he has to reduce us much lower than 1%. He's got to reduce us to nothing. He's got to say, you are dead to me. You are powerless. And it's only then when God can reduce us to absolute nothing that Jesus comes in and he fills us up with absolutely everything. 
everything. And, and sometimes we learn this in little ways in life. He takes us down to build us up. But ultimately, that, that's the, the biggest way that he did that was when he first came to us when we were dead in our sin. And, and so let, let's finish up the story of Gideon real quickly here. And then one uh, concluding thought. So, so Gideon now has these 300 men. And he's trying to, you know, his, his job is to deliver all of Israel through 300 men. And so what God does is he comes to Gideon during the night. So he's got these 300 men camped. And this is what God says to Gideon during the night. The Lord said to him, get up, go down against the camp. Basically, go fight them because I'm going to give it into your hands. And before Gideon can raise his hand and say, wait a minute, you got 300 guys. What am I supposed to do here? Before Gideon can say anything, God says this. If you are afraid to attack, go to the camp and listen. Go to the camp and listen. And if, if you're facing something that you're thinking, I have no business facing this alone. I feel so weak right now. I need to strengthen up myself before I go. Maybe God's saying to you, well, hold on a second. If you're afraid, just go. See what you hear. See what you see. Now, before Gideon could get to that camp and listen, there was something that he saw. It says that when he went down there, he saw Midianites and, and several other ites and people from the east. They had all come in, and they were all gathered around, and, and he said that there were also camels, and it was so dense, it was like there was, it was just sand on the seashore. And that was the first thing he saw. And if I were Gideon, I'd be thinking, what in the world? God gave me a thimble full of sand to face the sand on the seashore. But then he heard something interesting. About verse 13. Gideon arrived at their camp just as a man was telling his friend a dream. And this is a really, really weird dream. Uh, the, the dream is basically, hey, I had a dream that a big loaf of barley bread was rolling down the hill and it knocked over our tent can't make this stuff up. It's actually in there. You can read that this week. A big loaf of barley knocked down our tent. And his friend says, there's only one explanation for this. This means that God has given our army into the hands of Gideon. We're done. And just a quick side note, I, I don't know if that was a literal interpretation that God gave that man. Here's what I do know. They were using what they thought and what they wanted to hear, and they were applying it to this dream. It was very subjective. You know, they said, whatever we want to hear, whatever we want to interpret this dream as, that's how we can interpret it. I could have interpreted it. This means we're going to have so much food and so much plunder. We're going to be knocked over. We're so, we're so filled up. You know, you could interpret that dream in a number of ways. But here's how they interpreted it. This is what, how they put their spin on it. They said, this is a sign that we will be destroyed. So the entire camp was just filled with fear over Gideon and what God was about to do. And so here's how Gideon reacts. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, step one, he worshipped God. He didn't wait to celebrate and worship after the fight. He got down right there and, and worshipped God immediately. And then he went to the camp and said, all right, guys, wake up. It's time to go. And he took 300 men against the Midianites. And all I'm going to say is, we don't, I, I, I'm respecting your time. I wish I could go through the rest of the story. We don't have time here. All I'm going to say is those 300 men didn't even hold a sword when they faced that army. And yet, those 300 men won. 
because God was there and God did the fighting for them. Now, one last thing we need to really hold on to, and we're thinking, if I were Gideon with all these signs, I could have done the same thing if God would give me that piece of wool, whatever. Let's go back to the original question. Does God still speak to us through signs? Does he still communicate? Um, however you answer that question, I'm not going to say you're right. I'm not going to say you're wrong. Some of you say, no, I'm, he doesn't communicate. Others say, oh, yes, on a daily basis. Um, th- this last fill-in, this last main point is, is the one that can be used to guide us no matter what. Any subjective sign. In other words, I had a dream, and I think the dream means this, and so you interpret it to mean whatever you think it means, and you can go a number of ways, but here's what I think it means. So that's subjective. It means it's kind of up to you for interpretation. Any subjective sign must be measured against God's objective message. His, his message that does not change. It's not open to interpretation because it's very simple, very plain, black and white. So here's what I'm going to say. Does God give us signs today? Can God communicate to us? I, I would absolutely say absolutely he can. And maybe even he does. After talking to, to some Christians um, who are very convinced that God has spoken to them through signs, I just sort of put back my hands and I say, fine, maybe he can do that. I'm more the skeptical type, so I don't usually buy into it. But it's fine, fine. God can use fleece if he wants to. But for us today, especially us today, whenever we have one of these signs, we should always measure it against what God has clearly said. What God has clearly said. And you might be thinking, oh, this is a cheesy way to end the message. Just you know, read the Bible, that, that's how you do it. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's a little cheesy, but here's the thing. This, the signs that God gave to Gideon, this fleece, this burning up of the fire, this hearing of the dream, the signs he gave Gideon were recorded for you. The sign that God gave through Jesus, the signs that demonstrated, hey, God is really with us, those signs were recorded for you to see. The signs that reinforce that God never breaks a promise, those signs were written down for you to hear. You see, the, the signs that God has given in the past, they've been accumulating and accumulating, and so it's not just this, oh, I'll put down my fleece and see if I should you know, go for whatever job. God has given you something much, much, much better, much bigger than that. He's given you a whole bundle of signs and promises recorded for you today. And so as, as we move out from here, one quick interesting thing. As the apostles first went out, and they were sharing, after Jesus' resurrection, they were sharing this crazy message. Hey, this Jesus of Nazareth, he died, he came back to life, and he's the Messiah. This was a complete change from anything that had ever been taught before. And so a lot of people were rightly skeptical. And so what happened in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, they went to this place called Berea, and, and the Bereans there, they heard this message from the apostles that this Jesus had, had died and rose again. They're like, this is, hold on, this is crazy. This is a new sign. This is something we've never heard before. So you know what they did? Uh, it's described as something very noble. What they did was very wise. It says that they took the teachings of, of the apostles superstars, and they compared what they heard to what they read in the scriptures. They took 
what for them could have seemed subjective, and they applied it and, and compared it against what was clearly objective. And that's the same exercise for you today. So um, one, one quick last thought. Okay, so what do we do with this message? What do we do with Gideon, and how do we wrap this up? Uh, simple, simple truth is, if you've got 32,000 soldiers, be ready to drop down to 100. Be ready to drop down to 300. Um, here's what I mean. If, if you are in a place right now where you're sitting at 100%, what will it look like if, if God brings you down to one? And, and something really, um, to, to really apply that, there's going to be uh, ministry opportunities uh, here at Bethlehem or, or wherever you live. There's going to be places and ways that you can serve. And you're going to look at some of those things and you're going to say, absolutely, I can do that. No, I've got the skills. I've got the abilities. I'm 100% in that category. That's me. And in fact, you've you got some uh, little uh, sheets on your way in today, those little pink sheets. And you're going to look at some of those things and you're going to say, yep, that's me, yep, that's me. Oh, no, I have absolutely no gifts in that area. Here, here's maybe a challenging thing to think about. Maybe consider that, that, that line that for some reason grabs your attention, but you're saying to yourself, I can't do that. And yet you keep looking back at it and, and you're thinking, but I, I can't talk well. I can't do that well. I'm at a 1% for that one. And yet your eyes keep coming back to it. How about this? How about you go and see what it's like? How about you put a check mark next to it to see what God can do when you bring 1% and you depend on him for the 99? And what would happen if all of us did that, not just here at church? What if all of us did that in our families, at our jobs, with the people that were around? What if we said to ourselves, I'm not going to wait till I'm 100%. I'm going to go out there with one. Because I know that it is God who fights for me, and it is him who delivers. What would it look like if I could do that for one week? Let's close with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, through, through the story of Gideon, you've given us an amazing example of how you reassure people that uh, the things that you have told them are indeed true. You uh, let Gideon rest assured that he was, in fact, being visited by you. Yeah, you let him rest assured that you would indeed keep your promises, and you enabled him to rest assured even when he was down to less than 1% of his total strength. So what I pray is for me and for the people in this room, when we are in times of uncertainty, also enable us to rest assured, knowing you are really there. Help us rest assured, knowing that you will never break a promise. Help us rest assured, knowing that the fight is not ours to fight. It was yours to fight, and you have secured it through Jesus Christ. Help us rest assured in those truths as we see the various signs and reassurances that you've given us through your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray as we also join in the...